Welcome to LongTrailPodcast.com, a new series of podcasts about Vermont's Long Trail, the oldest long-distance hiking trail in the United States. We are podcasting from Camp Rough and Tumble in Faston, Vermont, our hiking home in the Green Mountains. I'm Ruff, and my wife, who is also my hiking partner, is Tumble. In today's podcast, I recall my recent hike on the Long Trail with my son, whose trail name is J.B., and his 90-pound yellow Labrador retriever named BJ. We hiked three days on the Long Trail North, from Hazen's Notch to the Canadian border, and then out on Journey's End Trail, a total of 20.4 miles, including side trails. Sunday, June 29, 2008. I awoke to the early light and the continuing roar of the wind. My hammock parts were all intact, and except for the rainfly, everything was dry. I walked over to the shelter to retrieve my hanging clothes. I felt okay and didn't experience any cramping during the night. My quadriceps was sore when I squeezed, so I decided to stop doing that. The male hiker was already up and eating breakfast while neither Marty or and BJ nor the new couple and their dog seemed to be stirring. I packed up my camp and brought everything over to the shelter. By then, JB was up and came into the shelter to eat breakfast. BJ hopped into the shelter, laid down in the back, and didn't move, totally ignoring the other dog. JB said he slept well. He used his cell phone to check the North Troy area radar and could see a storm heading our way. The couple's trail names were Moose Lightning, she, and Death March, he. I could have used this name yesterday. They related a tale of arriving at J Camp around 6 p.m., inquiring of the group inside if there was room for two more, and were told, quote, you have tents, don't you? Unquote. Unwelcome, they decided to hike on to Woodward. With youth, athleticism, and incredible fitness on their sides, they had made the trip from J Camp in about two hours. JB and I were amazed. We both realized that they had faced the same situation we had talked about earlier. Moose Lightning was one day away from finishing her end-to-end -end today, and Death March had joined her a while back. They were obviously a couple and enjoying each other's company. JB later told me that they said that Death March had originally started the trail hiking south from the Canadian border, had met Moose, and decided to accompany her northbound. They planned to spend their last night out tonight at Journey's End Camp, which was also our destination. As we ate, the skies finally opened up, and it poured for about 15 minutes. We stared at J.B.'s tent as it withstood the deluge. Moose and Death sat up and took notice. Then, as suddenly as it had started, the rain stopped. We resumed idle conversation, and then we looked out, and there was a twenty-something hiker standing in front of us. He was drenched, wore running clothes and shoes, and a small light backpack, and was lean like a long-distance runner. He said that he had started on the trail this morning from Journey's End. Since it was now only 7.30 a.m., this meant that he had covered about 10 miles in at best two hours. The shelter now contained five sets of slack jaws. B.J. was unimpressed. The fellow went on to say that he planned to finish the entire long trail in seven days. And then he turned to his left and took off running down the hill. I thought I saw his cape flapping behind him. Life on the trail never ceases to amaze me. The male hiker, who had no trail name and whose given name I have forgotten, I find it interesting that I can remember trail names but not real names, was the first to leave 
and he cheerfully bid us goodbye and a safe hike. Moose and Death stayed in their sleeping bags and were in no hurry to leave. Perhaps they were in a hurry for us to leave. J.B. wrung out his rainfly and we both packed up. J.B. struggled with B.J.'s torn pack and Moose offered him a safety pin to attach one of the saddlebags, saying it was no problem since today was her last day on the trail. We started north on the trail at 8.45 a.m. Today we planned to hike 8.7 miles to the Canadian border and then out the Journey's End Trail to Journey's End Camp 2 to spend the night before hiking out to the car the following morning. We faced climbs over Dahl Peak, then the unnamed peak on the North Jay Massif, Burnt Mountain, and finally Carlton Mountain. I took the lead out of the shelter and slowly made my way through the wet vegetation. I heard squishing sounds instead of our boots on soil. As we started up Dahl, J.B. stopped to adjust his equipment and I decided to keep going in hopes of biting off some of Dahl and testing my legs. I came to a huge tree blown down directly over the trail and determined that there was no way to climb through it. I backed up a bit and noticed a small, fresh trail leading off to the side, evidence of a recent hiker bypass. I followed it around the fallen tree. When I reached the trail again, I decided to wait for JB to direct him around the blowdown. Dahl Peak was a steady, tough climb, but by breaking it down into pieces, I was able to make steady progress. J.B. preferred to attack the ups with short bursts, as he called them. By 9.50 a.m., we had completed ten, nine-tenths of a mile and arrived at the top of Dahl Peak, elevation 3,409 feet. The wind was still blowing hard, and the temperature had dropped since we left Woodward. After a short dip, we chugged up a ridge for half a mile to the unnamed peak of North J. Massif. We had no visibility off the mountain and regretted that we were missing some great views back to Jay Peak. Other than overall tiredness, I felt better than I did yesterday afternoon during my heavyweight bout with Jay. From experience, I knew that the imminent northbound descent off the massive was going to be a challenge. The mountain didn't fail to live up to its reputation. We negotiated huge step-downs and mangled piles of wet boulders laced with slime and wet mud, and at the most serious, attention-grabbing, pole-gripping moments, we were attacked by thick swarms of bloodthirsty mosquitoes. The north side was out of the wind, and these insects were the elite squadrons with precision radar and a level of maneuverability unseen since the Jedi Knights. They bit at our necks, face, and hands, and since we were precariously balanced and in the act of looking for the next step down, we were unable to do anything but let them have their way. I couldn't stop for even one swat during these critical moments. J.B. took some bites on his face and I donated the backs of my neck and ears. When we finally reached a wooded section about halfway down, we stopped and frantically slapped on some bug repellent. B.J. smiled and preened in his yellow, bug-safe fur coat. Upon resuming, we went right back to breathtaking drops down the rocks. I thought that my poles would have to be surgically removed from my hands when this was all over. After what seemed like forever, we reached the hardwoods and more normal trail. Normal, as it applies to the long trail, should not be applied likewise to anything else on the planet. We went up for a bit and then down. We came to a small stream which I recognized as what the guide describes as the best water source for shooting star, and we decided to stop and filter. 
we were now one mile from the shelter. As we opened our packs, Moose and Death came bouncing down the trail. We said a quick hello, and off they went. If only we could rent their bodies for a day. We resumed our trek, and I related to J.B. the story of the hiker at Shooting Star who had volunteered to get water from this stream for me and other hikers during my 2005 stay at the shelter, when we had discovered that the pump wasn't working. As we hiked the long one mile to the shelter, we kept saying, Remember that incredible Mike from Baltimore carrying water up these rocks and hills and through roots, etc.? At one point, I remarked to J.B. that I thought I saw the roof of Shooting Star through the trees. As we moved on, the shelter was not there, and I told J.B. I had seen a shelter mirage. Just then, J.B. looked down at the trail and found a metal fork. We laughed and speculated about a Johnny Appleseed of silverware being loose in the woods. He decided to maintain consistency and carry it to the next shelter. I began to look for the Shooting Star water pump trail on our left. Ten minutes later, I saw the side trail, even though the sign was missing. I had read online before leaving for the hike that the pump was broken. At that point, I knew we had only to climb over a couple of big rocks to the shelter. We heard voices ahead. The day was becoming much brighter, and the sun was trying to break through the clouds. It was almost 1.30 p.m. Moose Lightning and Death March greeted us as they were finishing their lunch. After some brief chit-chat, they packed up and moved on. I wondered if their boots ever touched the ground. J.B. said he had an extra hot meal he wanted to eat, so I lit the stove and heated up some water for him. I snacked on a primal strip and cliff bar. We had a good time imagining the correspondence our lawyers might compose to the GMC about the trail conditions, with each of us taking turns adding sentences. And, of course, we also got into the GMC's fictional letter titled, Dear Former End to Ender, We regret to inform you of the recent trail relocations. You have 90 days to complete the new sections, or we will be forced to revoke your end-to-end -end certificate. We were now 4.4 miles from the border, halfway there since leaving Woodward. By 2.10, we were ready to push on. Next stop, Canada. The trip up Burnt Mountain was short but steep, and we had to climb up some rock ledges which required careful maneuvering and some high steps. My quadriceps noticed the requirement, but dutifully performed their tasks without protest. In 30 minutes, we stood at the Burnt Mountain Summit Overlook. Again, the sign was missing. As the day was clearing, we could see faint outlines of the mountains to the north, and I informed J.B. what he could see was all Canada. After a quick break, we commenced a slow, steady descent to Vermont 105. The 1.2-mile trip was punctuated with more wide mud pits and, of course, step-downs. We finally got a chance to just hike along and chat, and we quickly got into baseball, more specifically the Yankees and Red Sox. I told J.B. that this was a transition year for the pinstripers, and he got a kick out of my semantic replacement for it's early but getting late. The day was rapidly getting warmer, and the sun finally broke through as we approached the highway. Everything looked better in the sunshine. I realized that my body was throbbing, and I was bone-tired from all the pounding. After 105, we had one more mountain to climb, that sounds like a song title, and I knew I could always do one more of practically anything. We crossed the highway and stood at the edge of the parking lot. J.B. said, Well, Dad, just one more to go. You can do it. What a kid. 
We started through a field of wildflowers, and the summer heat and humidity sank into us like we were in a sauna. At 4 p.m. the inevitable climb began, and I sank back into a mix of straining muscles and rapid heartbeat. Last mountain or not, this was not the time to change strategy, so I pushed the trudge button on my control panel. Up a little, rest a little, drink a little, breathe a lot. I was playing my own internal exercise tape, except the screen kept going out of focus. High def, I wasn't. I focused on the elevation gain using my altimeter watch. The guide listed the net elevation gain from the road to Calton Summit as 520 feet. JB noted that it was a little over four stories. With that image in my mind, I almost fell over. We hiked up a bit, and I checked my watch. 400 feet to gain, then 300. We came to rocks that slanted up at about a 70-degree angle. Just beyond that was another rock jutting to the right, but slanting at about the same angle. Very discouraging. I wondered how the trail builders could sleep at night. Probably fine, since the originals were all dead by now. I placed my right boot in a crease on the side, grabbed some scraggly branches, and slowly eased up to a slight toehold. My toes were curled, and they started to cramp, so I hopped and replaced my right with my left. The GMC had better have that tofuti stand at the Canadian border open today. I twisted my body and stepped up to a tiny rock, which looked strong enough to hold me. Spider-Man would refuse this trail. Two more tenuous steps, and I stood atop the granite mass, thinking that the Spanish Inquisition might have been less nerve-wracking. We continued up, and I forgot about elevation gain. Just get to the next tree. After a couple of false summits, I heard JB call out, This is it! It was three minutes to 5 p.m., and as I came up the final bump, he was gasping and hugging a tree with a sign that read, Carlton Mountain, Elevation, 2,670 feet. I was certifiably deceased, but as the coffin lid was closing, I rose up and climbed out, screaming to myself, 1.4 miles to go. I shall not be denied. JB, with BJ, detoured down a side trail to get a view, which was rare on our hike. He was able to see southward to much of the mountains we had climbed, including Jay. We resumed and enjoyed moving through Carlton's balsam and paper birch summit area, which was flat for a while, and we gathered our thoughts. We were going to finish. At this pace, we should reach the border by 6.30 p.m. Journey's End Camp was 0.5 miles from the border, and the car was another eight-tenths from there. We thought about that extra eight-tenths and what it meant if we were to hike right onto the car. J.B. was more than willing to do this, even though he would have to drive home at night. We were wet, tired, and covered with enough mud to start a new mountain. As we hiked along, we relaxed and made the decision to hike out. Carlton's north side descent was nasty at times with some deep mud pits and even a butt slide down a rock. But we didn't seem to mind. J.B. looked to his right and discovered the latitude 45 degrees sign with the notation below, midway between equator and north pole. I knew it was coming up and was hoping he would spot it. He thought it was cool. I took a photo of him by the sign at 5.45 p.m. The footing was wet and we splashed along. The bugs started to bite again and J.B. stopped to put on his head net. They didn't seem to be bothering with me since I probably smelled like a rotting tree. Exactly five minutes later, J.B. Smotted, spotted a small sign ahead that read Journey's End Trail. 
I called him back since he had gone right past the weather-beaten, north-facing sign on a tree that marked the northern terminus of the long trail. He smiled and exclaimed, We made it. We hiked out into a clearing with some rocks, and I told J.B. to keep going and then climb up on the rocks. He did, and then spotted the border post 592, marking the international boundary. For him it was a magical feeling to be here, and he gave off the vibes of wonderment to me. We scrambled down to the post and took pictures of all three of us. It was a true joyous moment, and I was into it, soaking up the fact of our accomplishment and temporarily banishing from my mind some of the hike's lowlights. Hike accomplished, and it felt good. We hiked the half mile of the Journey's End Trail and reached the shelter junction in 20 minutes. Again we heard voices, and as we approached, we again saw Moose and Death. She was setting up for dinner on the table inside, and he was shirtless and bouncing around the site, putting fresh wood on a fire. Moose said that they had hiked down to her truck in the parking lot, gone into town to buy groceries, and had hiked back to spend the night. All of this in the time since they left us at Shooting Star. Next time we'll buy the boots that aren't lined with cement. I asked Moose to take a photo of the three of us, and she did. Then we hoisted our packs, wished them luck, and set out for the car. We came to the stream with a rope, and J.B. took off B.J.'s pack so he could be free to splash around, but he stayed with us and followed us across. Obviously, at this point, he had enjoyed enough recreation. As we moved through what seemed to be a long eight-tenths, we kept repeating our amazement that Moose and Death had not only hiked this trail down and then up, but had also carried groceries. We walked through more mud and reached J.B.'s car shortly after 7 p.m. I called Tumble and told her of our plans, but the reception was poor, and I hoped she got the gist of the conversation. I was truly glad to be no longer hiking. At that moment, the trail held no more thrills for me. I had doubts that I was fit to be a hiker, and that alone was a big disappointment. I never expected it to be so taxing and so hard. My body failed me, or did I fail my body? Logically, I knew that not being in shape was the root cause, and I thought back to prior years, Augusts and Septembers, when I ate up the trails for miles and hours on end. I hoped J.B. didn't think that my hiking days were behind me, the way he wistfully described B.J. a month earlier. At least we finished this time, and ten-year-old B.J. did great, this time eating only the apricots that J.B. gave him, as opposed to another hike when J.B turned his head, and B.J. grabbed the entire bag. Hopefully, we'll be together again soon on the long trail during some cool September days. J.B. drove out Journey's End Road, turned on Vermont 105, and then turned south on Vermont 101. At the junction of Vermont 100, he spied the Troy General Store, and we stopped for some food. I practically fell out of the vehicle and hobbled inside. I bought a veggie burger and some chips and juice, and J.B. got a cheese sandwich, trips, and a drink. We drove south and then west on Vermont 58 back into Hazen's Notch. There was still daylight when we reached my car, but it was fading fast. I transferred my equipment and waved goodbye to JB. I then called Tumble and got a much clearer signal and told her I'd be home around 10.30 p.m. As I pulled onto the road, it started raining, and by the time I reached Vermont 100, it was raining steadily. With the help of twilight, I was able to see pretty well until about 9.30, when I was just north of Morrisville. In the darkness, I drove slowly and carefully, hoping to avoid any deer or 
moose encounters. The rain stopped as I approached Waterbury, and I pulled into the battleground at about 10.20 p.m. Tumble was there to greet me, and she carried my rain-swollen pack inside. After some Gatorade and a hot bath, I crawled into bed for some hugs and sleep. J.B. drove through some heavy thunderstorms in New Hampshire and didn't arrive home until 1.30 a.m. B.J. slept for the entire drive back to Newton and then for another three days afterwards. Holy backpacker, Robin. What an adventure. Ruff and J.B., July 2008. This has been a presentation of LongTrailPodcast.com. We hope you will return and enjoy future podcasts about Vermont's Long Trail. Until then, this is Ruff of Rough and Tumble, Long Trail End-to-End, 2003.